you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Thessalonians. The book of Thessalonians, that is 1 Thessalonians. If you do not have a Bible but would like to follow along, you can find a Bible uh, below one of the chairs in front of you. And we will be on page 987 this morning. 987. Because some of you are visiting with us, let me explain to you what we're doing on Sunday mornings right now. Last year, uh, we uh, decided that what we wanted to do was to know the Bible better than we knew it. Okay? That seems like a pretty good thing to want to do. We want it to know the Bible well. The problem is, if we just sit down to read it a lot of times, we feel like we're thrown in the deep end. We're reading about prophets talking about cities being destroyed and people offering uh, bad sacrifices and uh, about kings and princes and, and all kinds of regulations. And then we get to the New Testament and there's uh, different churches and different people working in those churches. And it can be a little confusing if we don't know where we're at and what we're reading. And so what we decided to do was to take one book of the Bible and on one Sunday morning give an overview of the message of that book through one key text. So what we did was rearrange the books from the order of the Bible chronologically so that what we could do is see the very beginning as God creates all things and trace after our sinful disobedience and rebellion against Him the story of God seeking the redemption of His people. So we began in Genesis. We worked all the way through the Old Testament. We've gone through the Gospels and Acts, and now we have been looking at the letters written by Jesus' uh, disciples to encourage uh, His people. And this morning we come to the book of First Thessalonians. And let me just give you a little bit of background so you can know what, uh, who the Thessalonians were and why Paul is writing to them before we dive into our text this morning. Paul came to the city of Thessalonica preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The same message that we believe today almost 2,000 years later, Paul was preaching uh, in this region of the Roman Empire all these many centuries ago. And he preached, as was his custom, to his own people, the Jews first in the synagogues, seeking to show them that all of the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus as the Messiah. And then from there he went on to basically everybody else, what the Bible calls the Gentiles, those that were not Jews. He was seeking conversions from both, and that is exactly what God gave him. People were being saved from their sins and from God's judgment by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But it wasn't long before the unbelieving Jews became jealous of the popularity and, frankly, probably uh, the involvement of some of the people who used to come to the synagogue that now were going to the churches. So they began to openly oppose Paul and his message. In fact, they did... Um, uh, something very serious. They went actually to the Roman officials and they brought charges against Paul saying what no one was supposed to ever say and that is there is another king besides Caesar. They said Paul and his friends are going around saying there is another king that they should follow, some guy named Jesus. And so Paul in quite a bit of trouble with people after him, was snuck out of the city one night under cover of darkness before he was ready to leave. 
He had planted uh, this church in Thessalonica. He was wanting to uh, build it up and to see it grow, to see it on a, on, on a steady platform of understanding before he left. And he was not able to do that. And so though he continued his work in another city called Corinth, he was constantly worried about the Thessalonians. How are they doing? What's going on with them? How are they enduring the persecution? Are they still faithful to the gospel? Did the message really take root? Were they really believers? And so he sent his young protege uh, in, in ministry, another church worker named Timothy, to go back to Thessalonica and see what was going on. How are the Thessalonians doing? And Timothy came back and he gave his report to Paul about all that he saw and all that he heard. And that report has now prompted the Apostle Paul to write the Thessalonian Christians this letter. And in this letter, he expresses his thankfulness. The gospel had taken root in their lives, enabling them to continue in faith and love despite the persecution that they were experiencing. That's the first three chapters of the letter. And now in chapter four, however, Paul says, as much good as I hear and see, there are some areas of which I'm still concerned about. There are some things that you could do better. He was concerned that some uh, people were criticizing his motives in leaving the church when he did. More than that, there were some who misunderstood the nature of the resurrection and the second coming of Christ, and it was adversely affecting their lives with the other Christians. Finally, there were some people in Thessalonica who were allowing the culture of the city to affect how they live their lives in sinful ways. And so Paul is wanting to, wanting to write now in this letter to both encourage them in their faith and yet also correct them on the sin that's in their lives. And this morning what we want to do is to look at that message of both encouragement and correction that Paul gives. The reason why we want to do this is because ultimately though Paul was the one who put uh, uh, pinned the parchment as it were and wrote the letter to first the first letter of the Thessalonians, it's actually God's words through the Apostle Paul. Those words are timeless, they are forever true and therefore when we read them correctly, we ourselves are given encouragement and correction in our walk with Jesus Christ. And so as we look to God's Word, we do not come with our own ideas about what it means, but rather we simply read the text and ask God to give us understanding that we can know its message and apply it to our lives. And that's what we want to do this morning as we look at the message of 1 Thessalonians where Paul not only encourages and corrects the Thessalonian Christians, but by default he shows us how to grow a biblical church. How, how can we as Crossway Christian Church, how should we go about seeing ourselves growing, built up in the faith? Well, Paul gives us not only the example to follow, but the bigger picture of how we go about growing as a church. So I would encourage you to follow along as I read uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Paul says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards us disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. May God bless the reading of His Word. As we read this passage, I think three, three examples emerge from our text that will help us to know how to grow a biblical church. Examples that we ourselves should imitate as we seek to follow the Lord and be built up and grown together in Christ. Number one, we see there is a biblical prayer for growth. There is biblical prayer for growth. From the outset, I think, at least as I was reading this, Paul rebukes us by his example. You see, he taught the Thessalonians and now he wants them to grow, but he knows what we often forget. We should know it, but we forget it practically as we live our lives, and that is this. Growth, real growth, real spiritual growth comes from God. Amen. Full stop. That's where it comes from. We, we, can try and, we can try and force it to happen, but unless God is in it, it is not going to work. This is why he prays for the Thessalonians. He said, may the Lord make you increase and abound in godliness. And far too often, I think, when we look at others, when we think at ourselves, we always think, I need to do better at this. But we don't do better. We stay in the same old ruts. We commit the same old sins. And nothing changes. Why? Because we don't ask God for help. We don't pray and say, help me to be holy. Help me get, uh, give up this sin. Someone said it's like, it's like being in an accident where your car is knocked off a bridge and it hits into the, to the river and you're sinking. And you've got Clark Kent on speed dial on your cell phone, but you don't call him because you think he can't be bothered with me. Now, you know who Clark Kent is, right? You know, dun, 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 you know? I mean, you would call him, wouldn't you? It's, it's, not, just, it's not just nice to, to know that God is there listening to us, wanting to respond to our prayers. It is essential if we are to grow that we call out to God because our growth is a work of God. We could struggle and toil. We could watch others do the same, but we must pray. Otherwise, nothing is going to change. Paul prayed, even if we don't always as we should. But what did he pray for? He says, I am praying, I am hoping, I'm longing that the Lord would make you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all. First, Paul prays that the Thessalonians would increase and abound in one another and that that increasing love would in fact overflow to everyone, even those outside the church, to those who are persecuting them. In other words, Paul prays big. Uh, he, he doesn't skip. He doesn't say, well, just, just love a little bit more. Just do, just do a little bit better. 
No, the image is of this unstoppable, overwhelming flood of affection welling up from the Thessalonians, to covering one another and spilling out into the streets of Thessalonica, as it were, as it were, loving all of the world. And as we'll see in a minute, they were already loving one another. But Paul says, do more. Do more. Love increasingly and aboundingly more. And notice the example that he says that should be theirs in how they seek to love. He says, increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Paul says, you should continue to love one another even the way we love you. Now, if you go back and you read chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, you will see Paul explaining and reminding them of the ministry that he had there in Thessalonica. And there you will also find some of the tenderest language to describe pastoral ministry. You'll read things like this. Though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of our God, but ourselves, because you had become very dear to us. It's that kind of devoted, loving concern for others that Paul desires the Thessalonians to have for one another. And therefore, he prays for God to establish that work in their hearts. Why? Because he says it will help to establish them in holiness. Look again at verse 12 and 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that, Paul's telling us, this is why I'm praying for this. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Paul prays that there would not be any sin that could be charged against them from others. And he prays that this blamelessness would be because of their holiness before God. Paul is therefore praying that through their, overloving flow, their overflowing love that God would establish them in godliness. Now what does he mean by all this? Well, at the, at the very basic it means this. Their love is to be genuine. It's not just to have an appearance of love. It's not just to say, well, they look like they're really loving. No, because what does he say? They are to be established in holiness at the return of Christ. When they stand before God, their Father. You're, you're not fooling Him. God is in, in fact, God says elsewhere, I don't look at the outside. I look on the heart. And what Paul is saying is, so loving, so holy do I desire you to be. Do I pray that God would make you, that you'll be found blameless, not just before others, but before Him when you stand before Him on the final day. I think it's important that we stop here for a minute and we let Paul's prayer sink in. And we need to ask ourselves, in light of what he prayed for, what are the kind of things that we typically pray for? Paul could have prayed for their health. He could have prayed for their physical prosperity. He even could have prayed for the relief of persecution for the Thessalonians. And maybe he did. But when he writes to the Thessalonians to encourage them, he shares with them what has been the focus of his prayers, namely their spiritual maturity. So what are we praying for? Are we praying for ourselves? What are we praying for others? Are we praying what's best for them? 
Are we praying for their spiritual maturity or are we just praying for what's easiest? You know, my, my, my brother, he's got, he got a stubbed toe. We should pray for him. All right, we can. But does your brother know the Lord? Is your brother walking the way he should be with the Lord? That is, yeah, let's pray for the toe. But you know what? Someone can have a, 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 a great toe that he can bounce around on and still go to hell or be a bad witness in the city. The, the, Paul gives us the priorities that we should be praying for, the kind of big praying, asking God to do the things he wants to do that only he can do. That's the kind of prayers that we must pray if we're going to see the church grow. Paul began with prayer, but he doesn't stop with prayer. He also shows us the biblical motivation for growth, the biblical motivation for growth. Paul challenges the Thessalonians to remember the teaching that he had given them before and that they should remember how they were to live and that they are to follow it. He says, Brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Paul had given the Thessalonians teachings. He had given them instructions. But what did he teach them? He taught them how to live. He didn't just teach them doctrine. He didn't just teach them what to think and what to believe. He taught them how the doctrine, how belief, how that was to shape their life. And so Paul says, we taught you how to live. More than that, though, he gave them a reason to live, even as he instructed them. Verse 1, they were to live in order to please God. Paul gave these Christians very specific instructions on how to go about living the Christian life. And he's reminding them, remember all those things I told you. But more importantly, remember why we taught you those things. Remember the motive behind your obedience. It was to live a life that is pleasing to God. Think about that for a minute. First of all, where does that come from? Why should we live a life that is pleasing to God? Ultimately, because those of us that claim to be Christians, we bear the name of Christ and He is our example. And you remember in John chapter 8, he told his disciples that he always did that which was pleasing to his heavenly Father. So as Christians, we're simply following the example of Christ, trying to please our heavenly Father as well. But secondly, think about what it means for us to live a life that is pleasing to God. It means that every goal we have for our lives, every plan that we make, every decision we contemplate should have this one desire behind it. I want to please God in this. I want to please God in this. Now, if we're honest, I think many of us would be able to raise our hand and say, I'm not there. When I wake up in the morning, my first thought is not, how am I going to please God with this day? My my first thought is probably, how soon can I get coffee down my throat? Right? Or I don't want to go to work today. Or I can't believe I had that fight with my spouse last night. Whatever it is. Yet Paul says, our motivation we should be constantly working towards is asking the question, how can I please God in this? How can I please God in this? How can I please God in this? And in a few minutes, he was, he, we're going to look at what he gives us some very practical instruction about how to, to go about doing that. But the question is, how do you not just follow a set of rules, but have the desire to want to please God with your life? How, how does it become an inward motivation? Think about it like this, an illustration I read from a, 
Presbyterian minister. He said, imagine that uh, you're at home and, um, you know, you're kind of bored. Maybe it's raining out. What, you know, there's nobody around, whatever it is. And uh, you say, you know, it would really be great to listen to some good music. So you pull out whatever your favorite CD is and you pop that thing in and you crank that thing up and it's just, it's going. And it's not, you know, uh, for the sake of illustration, let's just say it's not a hymn, okay? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, something, it's something grooving, okay? Whether it's, whether it's uh, got a country twang or, uh, you know, a three-chord, you know, classic rock harmony, whatever, whatever your specialty is, okay? Maybe it's classical thunder. I don't know. But, but it, it, the music is so getting you, you know, you start kind of, kind of tapping your toe and then you start getting into it and you're just dancing. I mean, you're just, there's nobody else in the house and you're just, you're going all over the place, you know, maybe do a little moonwalk, whatever it is, but you are in the groove and then you don't hear it, but your friend is knocking on the door and you're good friends with this person. So when you don't answer, they come in your house and they see you just, just dancing like a fool to this music. And of course, you're so into it, your eyes are closed and you've skewed the furniture back and you're just having a big old time in there and the guy, that your, your friend sees all this, but he's deaf. He can't hear the music. And so he thinks, huh, smile on his face. I don't really know what he's doing, but it looks like fun. So, so without hearing any music, without hearing anything, only seeing you jump around like a fool, he starts, he starts watching you and he's trying to get the beat. He's trying to get the rhythm and he's trying to match you in, in how you're dancing with all the moves. And after a while, he kind of gets into it. And after a few minutes, he's pretty much keeping up with you, but he thinks this isn't nearly as much fun as it looked. Well, then, another knock at the door. Your third friend comes over. And again, good friend, you don't answer the door, so they just let themselves in. And he comes in and he hears the music blaring. He sees you with a smile on your face dancing around. And he sees this other guy dance along with you. And in his mind, he says, look at that. They're both enjoying this music, dancing, having a great time. In his mind, you're doing the exact same thing. Now, what in the world is that story about? It's simply this. As Christians, we're never going to want to desire holiness if we're not hearing the music. We're going to be like the second guy where we're going through the motions, we're imitating what other people are doing, but it's not fun for us. It's drudgery. We don't want to do it, but we know it's expected. The reality is there are very, very different things going on there. The one person has a genuine smile on his face and is joyful because he enjoys what he's doing. The other person is just, is just following along. But he can't hear the music. There's no joy in it. It's not fun. He's just getting tired. And likewise, there are some Christians, some of you maybe even here today, and you're thinking, I got to be holy. I got to be holy. I got to obey these rules and I got to keep up. But there is no joy in it whatsoever. The reason is you can't hear the music. And what I mean by that is there is no delight to please God in your life. The motivation isn't there. The question is, how do we get that motivation? How do you come to truly delight in God and take joy in pursuing holiness? The answer is simple. The author of Hebrews gives it to us. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who, though he was infinite God, he took on flesh, he became like us, he lived among us, and what could only be called the muck and mire of humanity, so that he could achieve a righteousness for someone else, namely sinners. 
And at the appointed time that God determined, Jesus not only lived His perfect life, but He died an imperfect death. What I mean by that is He was strung up as a common criminal, though He was sinless. He had done nothing wrong. Nevertheless, He died. He was crucified on the cross. Why did He do all this? Why did, why did, he, why did he take on flesh just to die? He did it for sinners. Sin can only be atoned for by the shedding of blood, the Bible tells us. And yet, though His people had offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice of animals, all that was doing was holding back God's wrath until Jesus Himself, the perfect sacrifice, could be offered up for the sins of His people. And so now, now, Jesus, though He has lived the perfect life, He has died for us. He did not stay dead, but is raised back to life. And God says all who would look to Jesus and they would trust Him to be their Savior. That is, they would trust Him to be right with God. That God would look upon His death as their death. So when I trust in Jesus Christ and say, I can't save myself, I need Jesus, God says, I consider you dead on the cross. More than that, that perfect life that Jesus lived, I consider that your perfect life. You are a sinner, you deserve hell, but I forgive you and consider you righteous. Now when you think about that, when you consider that though you didn't deserve that, God didn't look at you and say, oh, wouldn't it be great for that person to be a Christian? He looked at you and said, you deserve hell forever. And yet He sent Christ out of love and grace and mercy towards you. When you let that wash over your soul, you will come to take delight in pleasing God. You will come to understand how much He has loved you and want to do nothing but love Him back. That's the motivation for growing as a Christian and growing as a church, longing to please God because of the cross. The question is, what do we now do that can please Him? What specifically does it look like in our life? And this is the longest section of our passage. Here we see the biblical instruction for growth. The biblical instruction for growth. Paul has said, here is the prayers, that here's the kind of prayer we must pray, here's the motivation we must have, and now here's the kind of instruction, kind of practical training that we must give and we must hear in order for the church to grow. One of the, one of the things that I hear Christians talking about all the time and myself talked about is this question, what is God's will for my life? Have you ever asked that question? Usually it comes in the big decisions. What job should I take? What house should I buy? Who should I marry? And the reality is a lot of times we get so caught up in knowing, oh, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? That we miss. Sometimes God tells us very specifically, this is my will for your life right here in this book. We're just going to open it up and read it. And if we would actually learn the basic parameters, the fundamental directions we receive for our life, then some of those other questions would just take care of themselves like that. For instance, here, Paul makes it easy in verse 3. What does he say? This is the will of God. That seems pretty direct, doesn't it? This is the will of God, your sanctification. What is he saying there? Sanctification just means your holiness, your being set apart from a sinful world for God, living a righteous life before Him. That's God's will for your life. Now you think about that. If we actually thought that and believed that and wanted that, then every question, even the big questions like who to marry and what job to have and everything else, the first question we'd ask is, is this going to advance or impede my sanctification? Is this going to help make me more holy or is this going to make me less holy, right? 
Well, that's what Paul has in mind here. And he specifically addresses some issues where the, the Thessalonians were not living in holiness. Two things specifically that he addresses. And he says, this is God's will for your life. This is what it means to be holy in part. It's not the full picture, but it's two specific problems that the Thessalonians were struggling with. First is this. God's will for your life is sexual purity. God's will for your life is sexual purity. Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's clear from historical sources that much like our country today, sexual promiscuity dominated the Greco-Roman culture of which the city of Thessalonica was a part. In fact, Corinth and Thessalonica had amazingly bad reputations for uh, the debauchery that was there. And unfortunately, people who had, who had lived all their life soaked in that kind of culture and then had been saved out of it, nevertheless found that old habits die hard. Those old mindsets, that old way of thinking that all things were okay, that that still had a grip on them. And Paul says, though I have taught you these things before, some of you have not yet learned those lessons. You're not living that way. So let me again remind you that God desires your holiness, specifically your sexual purity. The word for sexual immorality that Paul uses here is most often, uh, he most often means by it simply fornication. Two people enjoying the marriage bed without the marriage covenant. But Paul means more than that when he talks about sexual purity because uh, in verse 5 he talks about the passion of lust. So it's not just what you do with your body, it's what you think with your mind and you feel with your heart. You must strive for sexual purity. It's a complete expression of that purity. Not just the touching of bodies, but the freeing of our minds from lust. And in verse 6, Paul tells us how bad things had gotten and implicitly gives us a practical warning today. Notice he says, No one should transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Do you understand what he's saying there? I mean, he's speaking a little euphemistically there in this matter. But what has he just talked about? Fornication. He's talked about sexual immorality. One of the worst expressions of sexual immorality is what he's addressing here, and that is adultery itself. That you take someone else's spouse and act like they're your own. Even in the context of Roman culture, that was considered unthinkable. That you would betray your friend by taking his wife. And yet this is the very thing that some of these Christians in Thessalonica were doing, sitting not just against God, not against themselves, but against their own brothers and sisters in Christ by sleeping with another spouse. Now it doesn't take much for us to imagine how it all might have happened. In the first century, there weren't many large places for Christians to gather. So as they packed into homes, sharing intimate experiences of openness about their lives, what may have began innocently suddenly began, became for them a temptation to do something more. Perhaps it began when, when someone shared a testimony of their growth and it, and it revealed a certain spiritual outlook that they had that you began to admire in them. That admiration led to you being more aware of that person in the Christian gatherings and perhaps even in and, uh, and outside the city. Soon that increased awareness led to more time being together, which then led you to be thinking, you know, it would be so much nicer for me if this person was my spouse instead of the one that I have. 
Suddenly these two would be sitting together all the time during the worship services or reclining next to each other during the fellowship meals. Flattery would lead to excessive physical contact. What we began is perhaps maybe casually brushing aside one another, moving in and out of the house became lingering touches and extended embraces at the end of the service. And over time the culture of sexual indulgence would lead to the obvious sin. Do you see how innocently it all starts? Do, do, do you see how it can even begin with good thoughts of this person is mature in Christ and I admire that? And yet how in the sinfulness of our hearts and the culture of sexual deviancy, that, can e- that good thing can even become twisted to the point of us committing adultery. We live in a culture that permeates our eyes and our minds with images of skin and promiscuity as if it's glamorous and exciting. But like all sin, sexual immorality does nothing but destroy lives. But perhaps your temptation is just all in the mind. Perhaps you live in a fantasy world of lust that leads you to sin against your own body. Paul reminds us that even then the Lord is an avenger of these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Paul says we are to have nothing to do with such things. And let me just say this, because sometimes Christians get a bad rap when it comes to this issue. Okay, So let me just shortly but frankly speak. Christians are not against sex. Okay, Sex is good. Because God made it, and God doesn't make anything bad. It's when we pervert His design for what is good that then Paul says, put on the brakes and stop. Because you're not only perverting God's good gift, but now you're destroying your life and the lives of others. So don't buy the lie that somehow Christians are prudish. No, we simply want to do things in the way that God designed. There is a time and a place for everything. And all of these gifts are to be enjoyed to their fullest in those right time and places. And when it comes to the gift of sex that God has given, it is one marriage with one person for one lifetime. That is the plan that God has laid out for our lives. Understand, friends, that we do not live in a culture that is that far removed from the Thessalonians. We all face the same temptations, and we need to hear the same warning against such things. And therefore, I will warn you like Paul in verse 8, whoever disregards this instruction disregards not man but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. God has given you the Holy Spirit. And don't don't brush off that word holy. It is a Holy Spirit that is meant to make us holy people before God. Holiness involves sexual purity, but it also involves brotherly love. It also involves brotherly love. This is the second area that the Thessalonians struggled with. In verse 8, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You know, when, when I was in sixth grade, we, um, I had moved schools. I was in a new school and um, uh, for, for lots of reasons that uh, some are comical, some are serious. But I, I determined to do my best work at school. And at the end of the year, when I got my final report card, I was ecstatic to see. History, A. Math, A. A, 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 all the way down. And I held that thing out to my mom and said, look at that. And she went down until she got to the bottom. Penmanship. F. 
Now, what do you think she said to me? Thankfully, the F didn't count towards my GPA. But she said, you did great. You worked hard. But you could do more. You can do more. And I have to admit, if you look at my penmanship, I didn't listen very good on that one. But Paul says the same thing in Thessalonians here. You guys are doing good. You've worked hard. You know what it means to love one another. But you can do more. You can do better. You can take it to the next level. You haven't hit the ceiling yet. You have not maxed out your love for one another. You can do more. And specifically, he says, we urge you, brothers, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Now, I find that to be a striking statement. I don't know if you do or not. Because at first glance, it seems to contradict other things that Paul has taught. It seems to contradict his own life. I don't look at Paul and say it was a quiet life. He kept to himself. No way, man. I mean, this guy is, is getting rocks thrown at him. He's having to hide and sneak out of cities in baskets all because he stands up in the middle of a crowd of complete pagans or devout Jews and says, let me tell you about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, that you may turn from your false gods and trust in Him alone. That doesn't seem like a quiet life to me. But remember that, that these letters are specific. They're not just kind of general things that he throws out everywhere. He is addressing specific issues. And what he is saying here is simply this. Don't be a busybody. Don't be a busybody. He's not saying don't get worked up and passionate about sharing Christ. And he's not saying don't be involved in people's lives. But he's saying don't be a busybody. Yes, we should be concerned for one another as he teaches elsewhere. But you have to ask yourself, in what way are you showing that concern for other Christians? Is it, is it, let me share this prayer request when you really mean, let me share this bit of juicy gossip I just heard? That's what Paul's getting at here. Are you the, the first one to burn up the phone lines, the chat feeds, the Facebook news feed, looking for information? If you are, then ask yourself, why? Why are you doing that? One pastor explains it like this. He says, there's a big difference between the selfish, selflessness which is behind putting others' needs ahead of your own, and the selfishness, which is behind you're always needing to be the first one to hear, or the first one to tell something, or taking offense if you haven't heard, and taking offense if you have. Before you seek to offer a piece of information about someone, it wouldn't hurt sometimes to simply ask yourself the question, do I need to know this? Know this. Does this person need to know this? And that's what Paul's getting at. So are you really demonstrating love for one another when in inappropriate ways? You're, you're about everybody else's business but your own? He says, no, that's not brotherly love. Finally, finally, in, in helping them think about brotherly love, he tells the Thessalonians, we urge you, brothers, to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, one of the things we're going to look at next week and we look at 2 Thessalonians is that, again, we kind of mentioned at the beginning a little bit, the Thessalonians had some bad information, some false understanding about the return of Christ. Some thought it was, in fact, so imminent they shouldn't work. Well, why bother getting a job? Christ is going to come back anyway. So they just went from Christian home to Christian home. You know, they would show up with their doggy bag to, to the, 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 the times when the church got together for meals and pack it up and walk home with it. And they were a mooch. And Paul says, that's not brotherly love. That's not brotherly love. He says, work with your own hands. Earn your own living. Why? So that you can help those that don't have. That's the motivation in life. Now, again, understand what Paul is saying. He's not saying you don't help anybody. You're not being cold-hearted. Christians take care of one another. But what he's telling those that are being taken care of, don't abuse the system. I mean, you think even today to this economic 
situation. And, and we've said to people, hey, you've lost your job, you can't find another. If you need help, you come see us. Church benevolence is first about church members. We want, that's a, a way we love you. Okay? And if it's not in the budget, somebody else will take you to the store and we want to take care of you. But that's far different from the professional loafer. You know what I'm talking about? The person that just wants to live off the generosity of others because they're big lazy bones, they can work and they don't want to. And Paul says in the next letter, he says, basically, if you don't work, you don't eat. If they're unwilling to work, then, then leave, them, leave them to themselves. He says it's not loving to take advantage of one another when there's no real need, when you can go about working. And all of these things, in these instructions for sexual purity, for brotherly love, Paul is giving them specific instructions on what the kind of life that God desires them to have looks like. He's giving them instruction both to point out their sin as well as to encourage them by reminding them of the cross that they might press on in a life that is pleasing to God. Mark Dever says this, How can you have a growing church? According to the advertisements in a recent issue of one prominent evangelical magazine, churches can grow by attending a seminar on, effective training, on effectively training church leaders in a local church or by ordering some new Sunday school literature, by buying electrical communications gear from a store in Alabama, by picking up the right Bible study or Christian book, by going to the right college or seminary. One prominent seminary, if you enroll, claims to, quote, empower you to be a world changer, end quote. Dever comments, church growth today is big business. Many people from bureaucrats and declining denominations to sociologists of religion to earnest young evangelical pastors would like to know what a growing church is like and how to have one. Friends, Paul tells us right here what it takes to grow a church. It's God-dependent prayer, God-centered motivations, and God-honoring instruction. That's what I pray we will be about the business of doing here in this church. And more than that, that all of us would then respond to those prayers with that motivation, obeying the instructions that God gives us from His Word. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your Word. It is a precious treasure to us, giving us life by Your Spirit. And Father, we pray more than anything that we would be a growing church, that we would not look to latest fads, we would not look to the wisdom of man, but Father, we would truly rely on you to bring about the change that we need. Father, we pray in every way that you would be honored not only with this service, but our lives in the coming days and weeks as we seek to apply this to our own hearts and live in light of your truth. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.